You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 187. Why is labor trafficking so hard to find? Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, we have uh, an exciting pair of guests with us today. Yes, we do. Two Los Angeles City attorneys. I am glad to welcome to the show Rena. Shahande. She is the deputy city attorney assigned to the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office Anti-Sex and Labor Trafficking Program. She has over 20 years with the city attorney's office. She has prosecuted the city's most hardcore gangs, including MS, 18th Street, Avenues, Venice Shoreline Crips, among others. Most recently, Rena was in the civil branch defending complex, high-profile LAPD civil rights cases in both state and federal court. Notably, she defended LAPD from a civil lawsuit filed by the traffickers in the notorious Guatemalan sex trafficking case involving juvenile girls. I'm also pleased to welcome An Trung to the show. He is the director of the Anti-Sex and Labor Trafficking Program within the LA City Attorney's Office. He is the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's 2017 Sherwood Prize, combating hate for his work on the San Fernando Valley, Peckerwoods, a white supremacist gang. An is currently chair of the Labor Trafficking Subcommittee of the Los Angeles Regional Human Trafficking Task Force, and he previously served on the LA Metro Task Force on Human Trafficking. He drafted legislation to expand civil abatement laws to address human trafficking. He has also filed civil abatement actions against motels that have served as bases for human trafficking, narcotics, and other illegal activities. Today's conversation will touch on these topics, including the Motel 6 case involving alleged human trafficking, prostitution, and narcotics. We're so glad to welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I have just gotten to know both of you over the last couple of months, and every time I talk with you, I learn so much more about labor trafficking, and so I want our listeners to benefit from that. So I want to start with what we've got wrong, because I learned more from my mistakes usually. So let's ping pong a little bit between the two of you and give us some of the most common misconceptions about labor trafficking. The biggest one I think we come across is just the difference between smuggling and trafficking. There was a recent uh, high profile news story that broke about a trailer in Texas and how all these folks are found dead inside, and, and the, the headline was really, you know, human trafficking. And to me, that, that was symptomatic of a misunderstanding, which is we're not sure whether it was human trafficking or merely smuggling. And the difference, it boils down to smuggling is a crime against the borders. You're, you're basically crossing the borders, and the, the participants could be willing at that point. They could well have agreed to pay some money to be smuggled into the U.S., and that's smuggling. But at any point in time, it could have turned into human trafficking when they're forced to engage in labor or or other acts. And it's that force, fraud, or coercion that changes it from smuggling into a human trafficking scenario. 
Okay. Rena? Another misconception we come across all the time is that to be labor trafficked, you have to be physically confined, imprisoned by barbed wire or locked doors. And the reality is that a lot of people are labor trafficked through coercion, through lies, through misrepresentations and debt bondage. And there are real psychological reasons why people are forced to work against their will under conditions that they're not willing to work under. So I think that kind of flies in the face of the image that we have of people being trapped in in a physically confined space. I always struggle when I see posters for anti-human trafficking events and they have people locked up because I know that I'm walking by people in the street or in, in my community that are trapped in that. So how would I know if someone is possibly a labor trafficking victim? Some of the things that we've trained on and heard from our victim service provider uh, partners is that it, it just sometimes just takes a conversation if you're even allowed that contact. Some folks are not allowed to have any contact with the outside world. So for instance, in a domestic servitude case where somebody's held on site at a particular property, they perform you know, all sorts of you know, domestic work, they take care of the children, but they're never actually let outside of the property line. And so they're not gonna have any contact. In other situations though, you, you can see how blatant it is. We had one reported case where it occurred in a South Bay bakery. So some of the workers who were trafficked worked elbow to elbow with other workers who had been hired. And in that situation, there were reports that there was contact with customers and other folks who might have been able to, to catch that. But in those situations, for instance, if a, a customer came in early in the day and saw a worker working there, that customer may have to come back late <laughs> in that same day or late that night and wonder, oh, I'm seeing the same person there. I think that would be a tip off for folks who are being kept in conditions for longer hours, and it's not the typical worker breaks, it's not the typical work day that, that you would find. In that case, the other employees were actually able to see the differences in treatment of the trafficked workers. So they were able to alert authorities of what they were seeing. Okay, so if you see people working in your industry, in, your, in a restaurant, in a bakery, in retail, that aren't being treated the same way you are, then that should alert you to at least ask a question. Are there any other common misconceptions that we should address? One misconception is that somehow labor trafficking is less common than sex trafficking. We run across that. Labor trafficking sounds exotic. And so in people's minds, it's somewhere far away. And I think even when we look about what happens in the U.S., uh, most people think, if, if they've heard about it, is the Almonte trafficking situation where Thai workers were brought in and held at a, at a location with barbed wires and were forced to work. And most people have that extreme image in their mind. But labor trafficking, as reported by our, our victim service partners, really takes so many different forms. And I think, especially in this climate, it, it's severely underreported. And we can get into that a little more in detail about some of the challenges we're facing uh, in this day and age. So you, as the people leading the subcommittee for the task force on labor trafficking, you have a two-prong approach to this. Do you want to explain that for us? Yes, and I want to start in, 
you know, we're speaking on behalf of really our office, the city attorney's office. We can't technically speak on behalf of the LA Regional Task Force. However, some of the, this work is really the culmination of our partners and our, our, our folks who choose to attend these meetings, and I see them as, as working groups. But the group has really focused on two main prongs. The first one I can speak about, and, and Rena can, can talk about the second one, but the first prong is what we call expanding the eyes and ears of our network. And that's really a concept of we have folks who are clearly interested and motivated to fight trafficking. Who else do we need to bring to the table? And so at every meeting, we're talking about bringing new partners in. And we've been a little more strategic. There's another completely separate subcommittee focused on outreach. While we're looking also at outreach, we're more focused on specific folks who we think could make a huge difference because they're already out there at certain locations or certain industries. So, for instance, we focus on code inspectors. And uh, code inspectors, you know, you have folks, the County Department of Public Health, who we trained about 500 of those, and they go into all sorts of restaurants and other locations. We've trained building and safety inspectors, housing inspectors. We have some wage and hour inspectors. And so folks who routinely, you know, are out and about, we want to get them involved. We want to get them trained. We want their eyes and ears. And that's a little more strategic approach. We've also added some industry groups. So for instance, we have some clothing brands who have brought it upon themselves to really try to be on the forefront of this issue. And so they're involved. But we've also brought in Uber, for instance, and they've done already a tremendous amount. They're just not really publicizing it, but but they are uh, uh, doing very well on, on that front. And the more we can draw folks in, the more we can expand that network. And it addresses a common complaint that we've had from law enforcement over the years, which is, you know, we're waiting for the tip, we're waiting for the tip, and finally the tip comes, and unfortunately it's five years old. And there's very little corroborating evidence. It's stale, and detectives are frustrated that it's not timely, that we're not getting more tips. And so this is a very basic and I feel really traditional approach to just expanding awareness and getting more eyes and ears on the problem. The second prong of the agenda really dovetails with the eyes and ears. We're trying to find a systematic way to detect labor trafficking that doesn't rely on waiting for that five-year-old tip. Mm -hmm. So what we've done is we've been working with service providers and community groups, industry groups, to identify trends and identify vulnerable populations who might be more susceptible to labor trafficking. So what we're doing is we're compiling as much data as we can, and we're working with data analysts to see if we can more proactively detect labor trafficking. Right now, we have a really established system in place for sex trafficking detection because there's always been a vice model. Victims of sex trafficking are more visible They tend to be engaged in activity that's illegal, so they're easier to detect, and there's a system in place for that. Unfortunately, with labor trafficking, the labor itself is not an illegal activity that's going to be detected by law enforcement, so we have typically been very reactive, and we just rely on these tips. What we're trying to do is put together passive indicators that we can use to take a closer look at particular industries or populations to see if we can get that information without relying on a witness coming forward. Okay, so really truly developing 
protocols that are proactive instead of merely reactive. This is exciting. And I've talked to a lot of people. I've been doing this longer than I want to tell you from an international perspective, as well as here in the US. And I often run into people who feel like sex trafficking is a more egregious crime. And so the whole issue of putting the bad guys in prison and the traffickers, this becomes the big frame for justice. So when we start talking about labor trafficking, and uh, you know, I heard I heard both of you talk about the victims who really, they took that job because they needed the money. So they don't really care so much about putting the perpetrator behind bars. They need to get paid what they are owed. And the average advocate that's working on human trafficking doesn't really understand the concept of civil remedies. So I'd like to spend a little time talking about what that means and how you do that at the city attorney's office. Sure. So uh, I think for most viewers, the traditional prosecution model that most people think about are the criminal remedies. And so you have a criminal proceeding, you're seeking jail time, you may be able to get some restitution for the victim, but that requires a lot of work and it's, it's going to be somewhat limited. The city attorney's office, what we've been doing, and it's really built on a model that we've been working on for years, is a nuisance abatement, civil enforcement approach. So under California law, you had mentioned we have state laws that allow our office, on behalf of the people of the state of California, to prosecute folks who create a public nuisance at certain locations. And so, for instance, we had a recent case where we sued Motel 6 up in the San Fernando Valley, and it was a location that was a site for all sorts of activities, human trafficking, prostitution, narcotics, gang activity. And instead of filing a criminal case, we approached it from the civil side. And so we brought a civil enforcement action. And the difference was we weren't seeking jail time. We were seeking court orders and injunctive relief that required them to, for instance, hire security guards to patrol and make sure they knew who would come on and access the property. We required them to spend more money on camera surveillance equipment We required them to change their business practices in terms of how they registered their guests and how they identified visitors who came onto the property to visit those guests. So this batch really is a very different approach. We were still able to get, basically, uh, we entered into settlement, but had we gone to trial, we would have requested civil penalties. And that's another component of it. And that model actually works for a situation where if we had identified class of victims or or a a, a population of victims, we would have been able to ask for restitution for those folks as well. And just to kind of give you a parallel example, there's another section within our office called the affirmative litigation section. And that's what they do. For cases that are not human trafficking, let's say wage theft, they've been able to seek restitution for car wash workers who were getting paid, I think, $4.50 an hour. They've been able to get restitution for uh, Filipino home health workers who were, again, the company would charge clients an exorbitant amount, but then they paid them probably you know, $5.50 an hour. And so you can talk about restitution as one way to get back to that victim-centered approach. 
And that is a, an overall shift that we're seeing in law enforcement and other, and other areas is the shift to let's think about the victim. Are we taking care of the victim? And so in our labor trafficking, we always are concerned, does the victim have shelter? Does the victim have psychological services? We have partners who can provide legal services. And on our end, of course, you know, we hope that all that will help the victims feel more comfortable and encouraged to report to law enforcement. So that's, that is one thing that our office does that's very unique in the land of prosecutors. Wow. And I did he- remember in your bio that you worked on that legislation to expand civil abatement laws to address human trafficking. And that's not something that's common knowledge. It's not on every web page. So kudos to you. And definitely my students are going to study that legislation now. I want to know a little bit more about the difference between wage theft, exploitation, and labor trafficking. There's like a gray line there. Uh, how does that work? Because nobody can live on $4 an hour. So we know sometimes they're housed in substandard housing and they have to pay for that. So how does that work? The main difference between wage theft and actual labor trafficking is going to be the element of force, fraud, or coercion. I I would say that there is sort of a spectrum because force, fraud, and coercion, there are the obvious cases, again, like people who who are being housed in a garage and not allowed to leave, but there are the psychologically coercive practices and the debt bondage that are a little more of a gray area. So really what you need to look at is was there that coercive element, uh, and how strong was that coercive element? So give me a, an example of the coercive element in a debt bondage scenario. For example, let's say you have an international worker who's here, who was recruited by a labor recruiter overseas. They're brought to the United States, and their passport is taken away from them. They are told, you owe us. X amount of dollars for bringing you to the United States, getting you a job, and you need to pay that off, and you have to work with us until you pay that off. That would be an example of a labor trafficking situation. And unfortunately, those kind of workers are going to be constantly in debt. The debt increases over time. Sometimes there are company stores set up by the employer where they're forced to buy all of their necessities at exorbitant prices. And that just adds to their debt. So it's ever-increasing debt that's never going to go away, substandard wages, and the feeling that they're trapped, and there may be language barriers, there may be fear of immigration consequences. So those, those all combine to create a really coercive environment that can trap someone even if they aren't held behind bars. So then how does the investigation in that kind of case differ from the preponderance of cases on sex trafficking? I think sex trafficking, the transition from for law enforcement especially to take sex trafficking cases, they're basing it on an older traditional model, uh, the vice model that, that we mentioned. And vice is prostitution and other things. At least in the city of L.A., it's very clear that at any given time, you can drive to certain areas of the city, South L.A., the Figueroa uh, Corridor, or up in San Fernando Valley, the Sepulveda Corridor at certain times, and you will find sex trafficking going on. And so for LAPD and, and other law enforcement, 
they have a model that's been used. They're just tweaking it. They know how to deploy officers at a certain period of time and how to do an operation, and um, they, they will get cases with their time spent. Labor, unfortunately, takes so many different forms, and, and we're still on the, the tip of the iceberg in trying to figure out all the forms it's taking. But that's what's harder for our law enforcement to get their arms around, is how do we deploy people? How do we spend our time? And is it really a case-by-case individual example where it's a domestic servitude case? That's fine. You can look at a residence. But let's say you have folks at a different location for garment that's not listed as a business for garment. How do you do that kind of investigation? And I think those questions do present a challenge for law enforcement to take a look at and say, we have only so many resources and so much time. How do we efficiently do that? And I think that's where the regional task force and our work is is trying to bridge by saying, if we systematically look at this or we expand our eyes and ears, we may give you a heads up or at least you know direct you in a certain area so that you can start systematically investigating rather than, again, just waiting for that, that tip that may not ever come through. So as, as a community, how do we begin to build momentum? Because I know that, you know, a lot of people in, in this field, they're district attorneys, they're elected officials, sheriffs, all of this across our nation. And so they're very in tune with what people are interested in. And so as just community advocates, how can we drive the value of identifying labor trafficking and finding these civil remedies? I, I, I think my question is around the media hype of arresting the bad guys, throwing them in jail, going and having a trial, and then the bad guys go away and everybody goes out to celebrate and the cops, you know, they won. And so there's nobody that goes to jail, but somebody gets that restorative justice is, I think, the message I want people to begin to understand about civil remedies. Am I on track at all? Yes. So even within our office, the city attorney's office has a restorative justice program. So this is not in isolation. I think our office recognized that that's that's an increasing trend. Folks want to look outside of the traditional criminal justice system. We're clogging the courts. We're you know, putting stress on a system that's already handling so many other things. And I think it, it is time to be creative. It's time to think outside the box. And I joke with Rena all the time, in a different heyday 10 years ago, we never would have been allowed to do this type of work. And it's really uh, to the credit of our elected city attorney, Mike Fuhrer, who can think broadly to say, okay, let's, let's assign you to this important work and, and let's figure out how, how to do it. I think within the community, I always start with, once you know that this is going on, it's something that doesn't leave you. And so I want everyone who participates in our meetings or whenever, whatever we do tr- in our trainings to go back in their lives and, and have a hard look at whether it's an organization that they're working with or their community groups. You know, I I bring up churches, for instance. Our office has a faith-based initiative where we're talking to church leaders and other folks, and that directly comes from one case, I remember, domestic servitude case where a a woman was held at a property, never allowed to go off-site, except on occasion, frequently, the traffickers would hide her in the trunk of their car and let her out at a church. And the only contact she had was sitting 
for that service and then running back and being hidden in the car. Now, in your churches, had you just taken the time to go, hey, who is this? You're new. You know, that conversation might have caught that situation earlier. And so I, I think that that's the challenge I send people back to is not to say, we give you training and it only happens in this particular situation. It's really to, now that you're sensitized, go back to your life and look at your life and your connections and your your groups and your uh, affiliations and see within your sphere of influence who you can pull in. You guys are pioneers. Rena. you want to give us some closing remarks? I know you're great at that. <laughs> sure, sure. I think it's really important and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to discuss labor trafficking because this is one of the most under-discussed topics in human trafficking. I would encourage anybody who has an interest in learning about labor trafficking to get involved in their community. They can get involved if they're in the Los Angeles area with the Los Angeles Regional Human Trafficking Task Force. They have general meetings. They have an outreach subcommittee. Get involved with your church, with faith-based organizations. There are so many organizations that have an interest in this that all work together. There are coalitions of people. I would say the Asian Pacific Islander Human Trafficking Task Force has done tremendous work in this, mm. yeah. in this area. Pepperdine Law School is doing great work in this area. There's a group called the Seroptimus International. They have been doing great work with human trafficking and, and supporting victims of human trafficking. Another thing that there's a great need for is there are hotline posters designed to provide both the national and the California human trafficking hotline numbers to victims. We need volunteers to put those up, to talk to organizations about putting those up, and just to get the word out in your own sphere of influence. So I I think that's really important, and I appreciate the opportunity to bring this to light. So we're back to the eyes and ears and expanding the role of the community in identification. 20 seconds on for your closing. I think the thing that I want to highlight is that I've been involved, you know, tangentially or otherwise with human trafficking for a while. And this is such a great time for collaboration. So I'm very hardened by just, just the collaboration I see among agencies, the silos and the walls between different agencies are, are, are breaking down. And we're seeing that more than ever. I'm happy to see that part. The other part, though, is if I were a trafficker, this is such a great time to do that as well, because they are... Uh, taking advantage of the immigrant, the climate and the concern that plays right into their hands that uh, they can report folks and they get deported. You have folks, you know, now under economic pressure with homelessness and other economic concerns. And so what I'm concerned about is you have an increase in the vulnerable population at the same time that you have uh, greater collaboration among agencies uh, in law enforcement. That's a lot to think about. And I've got lots of notes and I'll be emailing you and we'll set up our next podcast to cover some more of this. Rena, I want to know more about the Guatemalan case and just so many things, but we have to sign off now. We'll put links to the things that An and Rena mentioned in our show notes and we'll look forward to talking to both of you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
thank you so much, An and Rena. We're so grateful for your wisdom and experience. And uh, Sandy, there's so much that we all have to learn and discover in order to end human trafficking. And we invite you to take the first step as well. If you haven't already, hop on to the website and download a copy of Sandy's book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It will uh, teach you the five critical things that Sandy and the Global Center for Women and Justice have identified that you should know before you join the fight to end human trafficking. You can get access right now by going to endinghumantrafficking.org. And we also would invite you to consider learning more if you are wanting to learn more about human trafficking to learn more about the Ending Human Trafficking Certificate Program that's offered here at Vanguard University, which of course uh, houses the Center, Global Center for Women and Justice. You can learn more about that also at endinghumantrafficking.org. And we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Sandy, thank you as always. Thank you, Dave. Take care, everyone.